on a whim, while preparing our 23rd episode, I searched online for the answer to this question. What is America's most significant export? I can report that the results on Google are totally wrong. And this was typical from the Observatory of Economic Complexity. The top five U.S. exports. Refined petroleum, petroleum gas, crude petroleum, cars, and integrated circuits. Wrong. Everyone knows America's most significant export is its music, which leads us to our topic for this Jazz Backstory episode and the next. Jazz International. Some years ago, I presented a program on our interview project at the annual conference of the International Society of Music Educators in Glasgow, Scotland. On the first night, I took a walk around the block and passed by a pub. A large picture window offered a view of a four-piece band rocking out for a raucous crowd. The tune? The Wanderer by Dion on the Belmonts of Brooklyn, New York. The same song I had played on a gig three nights earlier in Utica, New York. Turn back the clock to 1958, when the musician and entertainer Steve Allen visited Russia. He took note that the house band in Moscow's Ukrainia Hotel was performing tunes from the Great American Songbook, Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, and Duke Ellington. A current American marketing and branding phrase in the arts is world music, indicating music from somewhere else. There is now a World Music Day every June 21st. It's clear to me that shortly after an innovation in music occurs in America, it swiftly becomes world music, adopted and performed on every continent. 1917 marked the first jazz recording in America, and the raucous style made its presence known across the pond in swift fashion. By the end of the 1920s, European musicians were emulating the style of the artists they heard on precious imported recordings. Jazz, built on meritocracy and bandstand equality, held a particular fascination for musicians and the audiences living under an oppressive government. From our 1999 interview, Steve Allen relates the aforementioned experience in Cold War Russia. Sometime, if we have more time, I'll tell you about a, a, an album that I smuggled into the Soviet Union at that time, and I didn't have to smuggle it. I, it was just, you know, in my underwear. I didn't have to uh, <laughs> swallow it and reconstitute it with water later. Or anything. <laughs> Leonard Feather, the noted jazz uh, critic, got in touch with me. Uh, we were friends anyway in New York. And he said, I hear you're going to be in the Soviet Union in a few weeks. I said, yes. He said, would you be willing? He said, there might be some slight risk, but I don't think so. He said, would you be willing to take in uh, an album that uh, I would like to get delivered to the people who wrote the music? And I said, yeah, I'll just pack it in my suitcase. And what, what do I do then? How will I know who they are? Where they? So he said, well, you might not be able to reach them, he said, because it is a police state. But he said, at least you can try. And uh, he said there are always people over there who, despite the government's official line, like Americans and are willing to be civil. And some of them are hip, 
and they know the name of the local clubs where any jazz might be played. And if you could get to any of those clubs or talk to any people familiar with those clubs and mention the name of these two musicians, and he gave me a piece of paper with two Russian gentlemen's names on it. So uh, when we got to Moscow, after hearing that American music was you know, okay to be played there, uh, I didn't get to talk to those musicians in that band that night, but uh, after a few days with our official guides, who seemed very relaxed uh, and pleasant, I began to ask if, about jazz, and uh, in, in Moscow at least, and the word was, well, it's officially you know, frowned upon, but it, it happens, which happens with many things in life that are officially frowned upon. Uh -huh. So uh, I got the names of two or three clubs, and uh, they said they're not like jazz clubs in, in, in Paris or New York. They're just places where maybe a couple of nights a week some people come in and play a little jazz. It's, you know, the word jazz is not on the outside of the club. I finally was able to meet somebody who said, yeah, I know who those guys are. And I said, great, big progress. Uh, could you give them a call and tell them I'm here at the Ukraine and I have an album I'm told they'll be very pleased to hear and uh, they'll have to take it from there because I don't know how to get to them. He said, fine. So uh, a couple of days later, uh, the phone rings at the hotel, my room, and uh, a fellow, speaking naturally with a Russian accent, said, Mr. Allen? I said, yes. He said, uh, I am whatever his name was. I'm downstairs with my friend, the other man's name. And he said, we understand you have something for us. I said, I certainly do. What a pleasure to hear from you. I said, come on up. He said, no, we can't. You couldn't go to a foreigner's room in those days. Oh. So the, the police would talk to you about it. So I said, fine, I'll come right down. And uh, we did a little description of each other because I don't think they knew who I was. They didn't see my shows in, in, in the Soviet Union. The, the Benny Goodman story hadn't gotten over uh -huh. there yet and so forth. So I said, I'll be right down. I'll be carrying an album. That'll be one way you'll recognize me. And he, anyway, I, I went downstairs. Now here's a, a weird part of the story. There were maybe visible at the moment I descended the stairs 250, 300 people. It's a big hotel with an mm -hmm. enormous lobby. This is if you were in the, you know, the, well, any big hotel. And believe it or not, I picked the guys out immediately. <laughs> you might say, you know, they weren't wearing zoot suits uh -huh. or, you know, carrying trumpets or, you know, any cartoony factors that might have accounted for my quick recognition. They just looked hip. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Even in Russia. Yeah, even yeah. in Russia. And then this was 1958, uh -huh. again, Cold War time. So I, I couldn't be sure that was them because somebody could have looked hip and been with the KGB, you know, as a, just, uh, something to throw me off. Uh, <laughs> send our hippest man. We've we got an American <laughs> on the line. Uh, but it, sure enough, it was them. They came up and smiled and, and they spoke some English. I spoke only about three words of Russian, so we worked in English. And I gave them the stuff. And uh, that's about the end of that story. He gave them the stuff. Jazz LPs. A fascinating story, delivered with that mildly acidic Steve Allen humor. I recall being a bit concerned about measuring up to Mr. Allen's wit, as shortly before the interview, I had read his book entitled Dumpf, The Lost Art of Thinking, featuring tales of people acting without forethought or relevant knowledge, as in Dumpfly. I avoided being a subject in Dumpf Part 2 by recalling Count Basie's mantra, Less is more. I said very little. 
American music has had a profound effect in countries that have been our most significant adversaries. After multiple failed efforts in the 1980s, Dave Brubeck and his bandmates traveled to Russia in the name of Cultural Exchange. During our 2001 session, Mr. Brubeck spoke on jazz and freedom and the atmosphere in a Moscow ballroom. And we are, to me, the country with the far the most freedom and an example for the, you know, why does everyone want to come here? Yeah. And, you know, I've traveled so much in almost every country in the world. And there are times when we're hated, you know, they, but they don't ever seem to hate jazz. <laughs> you know, yeah. of course, you're getting a minority of people. But uh, the idea of freedom, unless there's, if there's a dictator or a dictatorship, the first thing they're going to stop is jazz. Absolutely. Hitler stopped it immediately. Stalin stopped it. Uh, I think uh, it just gives the country, the people of a country, too much idea of what it would be like to be free. And you see, that's the way jazz started, was the African-American getting freedom, being denied freedom, and it still goes back to those roots mm -hmm. of getting freedom. And people just don't realize how little freedom there was. When you, when you weren't, some people weren't allowed to speak, but they would sing maybe or hum. Mm -hmm. They're gonna some way they'll get through, and uh, you see, I've been through so many things where uh, I've had to back off because freedom is so important that the people in the audience are going to be in trouble. And twice I had to cancel Russia because the, our ambassador said, Dave, if you come, the secret police are going to take everybody's name at the door and they'll lose all their privileges. And some of them are going to come anyway. They want to hear jazz and they want to hear you so badly. But then when... There started to be cultural exchange. Gorbachev and Reagan were starting to be friendly. Then we're going to move again, like Eisenhower and some of the other presidents, to cultural exchange. And uh, Russians were gave, given a list of who they could choose to come. And we suggested... Uh, the Reagans suggested who would come, and the Russians wanted me, and Nancy Reagan wanted me to go. So we went with Air Force One, but there's four Air Force Ones flew. Uh -huh. uh, I see. Four different planes. Mm -hmm. There were so many uh, uh, 
press people in one plane and musicians and <laughs> my my bunch in another plane with a lot of other people yeah. was a real experience. But believe me, that room where we played was full of dissidents that Gorbachev had just let out of jail. Do you remember, if I got the name right, Sokolov? Uh-huh. Had just been released, and Iola was sitting next to his wife, who was, I think, a poet or a philosopher. And there were generals that had thrown these guys in jail. They're all sitting at this this big room, some at the same tables, and and uh, our top diplomats were there. And it, it, it was kind of a tense thing. And then it was time for us to play. <laughs> that room came together. That whole room came together. Mr. Brubeck, an emotional and passionate artist, could barely speak as he brought the story to its conclusion. I was struck by his recollection of being warned that Russian citizens who attended his concerts would have their names taken down and could lose all their privileges. This was not an idle warning. Trombonist Alan Raff experienced it during a concert with Jerry Mulligan's Jazz Orchestra in West Berlin. The Russian influence was pervasive, on both sides of the wall. Well, we had one very interesting um, experience at the Sports Palace in Berlin. Uh, this was 1961, I believe. Of course, the war was over in 45. The Berlin Wall was still up. Mm -hmm. We played a concert, and I guess the concert normal length was about two hours, so we were finishing it up. We had one or two encores that we were going to play, but after we did the last number, Instead of applauding, half the audience got up and left. They just left. And we couldn't understand this. We found out later that these people were from East Berlin. They had a curfew. And they already stayed past their curfew. So if they all left together, they had a chance of getting back mm. to East Berlin without uh, facing the authorities. I see. So they all got up en masse and left. It was the weirdest thing. We thought they enjoyed the concert, and here they are running out. You know? <laughs> But, it, it was but they strange. gave you a pretty high compliment. Oh yeah, by staying no, they, they, late. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. They actually stayed past their curfew because they mm -hmm. were so interested in the music. Repressive governments include jazz and Western pop music in their list of threats to their authority. Everyone having a say in a music ensemble might give the musicians and the audience ideas that would be harmful to the state. Drummer Ignacio Berowa was one of the 125,000 Cuban citizens that left their homeland during the 1980 Mariel boat lift. I wanted to ask you, when you actually were on the boat coming from Cuba to to Florida. Can you go back and remember your state of mind? What what were you thinking? What were you hoping for? 
Well, first of all, I was looking for freedom. In my case in particular, my life in Cuba was unbearable. I never liked the system just because the reason that I was not, I didn't, I disagree with a system that was against four guys from Liverpool with long hair, tight pants, three guitars and a drum. I didn't know the message they were conveying at that time because my English, when I arrived to the United States, my English was zero. I have no clue about English language. Uh, so I didn't know that what they were saying was all you need is love. I want to hold your hand and so forth and so on. But the Cuban government was against that music. So uh, Cuban music was against people listening to John Coltrane, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, because they used to say that uh, that was the music that represented the enemy. The enemy were the United States of America. So I was against that because for me being 13 years old or 14, 13, 14, I didn't understood why if we had a, a strong revolution that was for, supposedly we're going to be free, well, we're going to have a lot of things, and this revolution was so strong, why to be afraid of some musicians, some lyrics, or, or, or a genre of music, or style of music like jazz? So immediately, I went to the other side, because my passion for jazz, my passion for jazz, that's the music that I wanted to play, that's the music I love, so anyway, after that moment, I just wanted to leave the island because I know I knew my future wasn't in a country where I would not be allowed to express myself musically speaking. Let's put politics aside, musically speaking. So I always, my dream was always coming to the United States because the music that I wanted to play and my heroes were here. certain aura about art and culture that comes from somewhere else. A concert hall in America might sell out when presenting a balalaika ensemble from Russia or a gamelan orchestra from Indonesia. While in their home countries, this music would play a modest role. American jazz had a distinctive and exotic attraction abroad, and its introduction to foreign countries sometimes occurred in unexpected ways. We spoke of significant American adversaries. Historically, Japan certainly qualifies. The American presence post-World War II can be directly attributed to the spread of jazz in Japan, an embracing of American music that has continued to present time. Two Japanese musicians shared their stories of hearing and learning jazz during this American occupation. First up, clarinetist Eiji Kitamura, interviewed in Los Angeles in 1999 during his annual U.S. concert tour. 
Keywords to tune in for are Foxtrot and Sentimental Journey. How did jazz uh, come across, come to you in Japan? Was it through a records? Yes, yes, yes. When I was a 14 years old young boy, I heard that one record, SP record. Uh, my uh, my father liked classic music, mm -hmm. was Mozart, Beethoven, and Mendelssohn, all uh, SP records. And then I I found a very small uh, record, SP record. Uh, and I had that record. I very I was very surprised. The uh, other music. What kind of music? I, I saw a record label. And don't be that way by Benny Goodman. <laughs> but only this. And what kind of music? I, I didn't know jazz. Mm -hmm. And then I saw a record level, only Foxtrot. I mean, do you know Foxtrot? Oh, Foxtrot. Fa Fox, yes, Foxtrot. Sure, certainly. But I, when I was 14 years old, I, wow. I didn't know what mean Foxtrot. And then. <sighs> I understand this music, the fox, fox trot. And then I went in a school and I told my schoolmates, uh, I had a very funny music, fox trot, <laughs> by Benny Goodman. Uh, and I was very surprised. And then this was uh, <clears throat> my treasure record. Yes, you just had that one. Uh, only just one, one record. Just one. Was there a tune on the other side? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I thought the other side, other side, uh, uh, something uh, play uh, small, Benny Goodman trio plays something. The other uh, very uh, fast tempo number, mm -hmm. but I like down to be that way with yeah. orchestra. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> and then uh, when I was sixteen years old, and uh, this. Uh, uh, Second World ended, Japanese, uh, mm -hmm. and I had uh, Forest Network radio. I have, and all days play just a jazz program, and so uh, oh, I must, be, I'm, uh, I must play uh, something other. Uh, you were hearing lots of fox uh, Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And then uh, I knew uh, jazz music. All right. <laughs> and then I should uh, uh, begin some uh, jazz music. Mm -hmm. And when I was a child, I, I started at classic piano. And my, mm -hmm. my mother likes classic, my father likes classic, and uh, I play uh, a piano, classic, only classic mm -hmm. piano. And then I, I want, I want play the clarinet like the Benny Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> so, were you self-taught mm. on the clarinet then mm -hmm. in the beginning? Yeah, when I was 19 years old, 19 years old, I play uh, clarinet, and it was very funny. My classmate, he got one clarinet. And he couldn't play clarinet. <laughs> Many classmates try to uh, uh, draw the clarinet. 
and then the, I try a uh, clarinet blow, and oh, age genius. <laughs> My classmate <laughs> And then I uh, have to uh, uh, push a uh, uh, key. Uh, I don't know. And then the, I found only two notes. Oh, AG played the Sandman Jerry. But you can only play the first few measures. And then my classmate said, AG is a genius. And then I began crying. I love it. Even though we struggled a bit with the language barrier, or perhaps I should say, I struggled. The picture he painted is touching and informative. Eiji mentioned hearing jazz on the radio, courtesy of the Far East Network Radio, similar to the Armed Forces Radio Network in the World War II European theater. He also mentions the accepted music to study on the piano in Japan was European classical music. Eiji first modeled his playing after Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw he later copied and memorized the more modern improvisations of Buddy DeFranco. Here's a passage from my conversation with A.G. After Benny Goodman, I found Artie Shaw's record, and then after that, Buddy DeFranco records, and they were so different, a different experience of music. And then I copied maybe five albums. I copied all his improvisation. And then it was a very funny story. I met Buddy DeFranco. He came to Japan, and I played for Buddy. Buddy say, Eiji, are you a professional or a student? Oh, I'm a professional. He say, stop my copy and throw away your copied music, all of it. Throw away. Eiji, you need your own improvisation. You need originality. And then... I really throw away all the music. And then we met again in 76. He came to Japan. The Yamaha Corporation invited Buddy, and we played together. And Buddy say, Eiji, you've got big success. He said to me, Eiji, you have your own style. Not every jazz musician has been able to develop a signature sound. But it always will be a goal. Oh yes, by the way, our jazz vocabulary word. You've heard me end our podcasts with See You on the Flip Side. Just in case we have younger listeners, it simply means flipping the record over to hear the B-side, as A.G. did with that Benny Goodman recording. Like most of us who had 45s, he preferred the A-side. From a sociology viewpoint, Toshiko Akiyoshi's story would make for a fascinating case study. Born in Japan pre-World War II, she spent her childhood in China, where a daily routine including practicing European classical piano music. During our 1999 interview, Toshiko shared the introduction of yet another culture on her return to Japan. Was there a pretty strong 
United States presence in Japan after the war. After the war. Yeah. Is that how you heard jazz? Yes. Okay. Actually, you know, um, after war was ended, uh, during the war, Japan uh, was strictly uh, prohibited, prohibited uh, dance hall. There was a, oh. Before the war, there was a dance hall, I understand. Uh, I was too little to know about that. But uh, during the war, there was anything like that. But they were all uh, no-no for the country. So after the World War II, all of a sudden, there's a dance hall. And Americans, as you, you know, those uh, they are sort of like a classified officers' club, NCO club, what have you. And those days, even uh, it's not an I think unwritten law. I, I I'm not quite sure. I don't think official, but there was a black people. Whether they have their black soldiers, uh, right. uh, dance hall, you know. Yeah. Um, the, and then, of course, the Japanese wanted to dance too. So there are so many dance halls, and musicians wasn't that many musicians in Japan. So, so anybody who can play a little bit, they were immediately <laughs> hired. <laughs> so I took a job in dance hall, and. Uh, I think it was lucky for me, it was for the Japanese people. And one of the uh, Japanese young men, it's not young anymore now. I see him every once in a while. His name was Mr. Fukui. And uh, he was a jazz record collector. Oh. And somehow he thought I have uh, potentiality. <laughs> yeah. So he invited me over to his home and played the Teddy Wilson record. That's a kind of famous story. Yeah. Yeah. And he played the Teddy Wilson Sweet Lorraine. And I thought, I want to play just like that. <laughs> That's my first introduction. Great. But I was in 1947, I believe. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you went from wanting to play just like Mozart, just <laughs> like that, to just like Teddy Wilson. Yeah. That's good company. You, know? That's, you can do a lot yeah. worse. Yeah. When was the first time that you might have had to deal with chord symbols? Or just a lead sheet, as opposed to a written score. When, it, when, when I got the job, yeah. yes, I go to. Uh, as I said, it was the manager asked me. I saw this pianist wanted, so I go inside. The manager came out and he said, "Can you play piano?" I said, "Yes." He said, "Well, it coming seven o'clock night. It could be six o'clock. It was early." And uh, so I go there, and then I see uh, five people. <laughs> the band leader was an ex-Navy uh, uh, officer who played the violin. And uh, there was a great <laughs> violin and accordion, <laughs> and drums, and, and a piano, and alto saxophone. <laughs> no bass. And uh, he, uh, that's the first time I see chord symbol. And I never seen them before, so I said, "What is this?" He said, "You don't know anything." I said, oh, "No, I don't." He said, "Well, let me hear play the piano." So I said, "Well," so I played the sonata Beethoven sonata number three. And she said, "Oh, she can play piano." So uh, she said, "Well, just uh, do what you think you can do, and it's yours, yours, your year. I teach you how to." read the course in the next day. 
that's what it was. <laughs> and I really thought that was the, you know, the jazz and that was American. It's nothing but the noisy and I really didn't like it. But uh -huh. I had access to piano in an afternoon. So that was my, you know, the wonderful time, daytime I can just uh, mm -hmm. play piano. Because it's, it's a uh, dance hall only open in the evening. Uh, so it's from first day, yeah. So then this person would show you what Major Seven meant and, yeah. and all those kinds yeah. of things? And yeah. But I think probably he wasn't very well informed either. Mm. I mean, when, I got, uh -huh. you know, look, when you look back. But those days, I, everybody, I thought everybody sounded better than myself. So I, everybody, when they uh, suggested me to do something, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> Sort it out later. Yeah. Toshiko eventually immigrated to the U.S., first attending the Berklee School of Music, and eventually becoming a highly respected jazz arranger, pianist, and leader of the Toshiko Akiyoshi Jazz Orchestra, which featured her husband, saxophonist Lou Tobacken. If you had a bit of trouble catching some key phrases from Eiji and Toshiko, check out our accompanying episode transcript. We'll wrap up Jazz Backstory Season 3 with our next episode, featuring more stories of the international presence of jazz and the players who are compelled to leave their homelands to pursue it. See you on the flip side. <laughs>